excited about this stuff. And so I don't think it's a little comic that I'm excited about this, as I like to learn new things and this is a particular thing that I'm excited to find out. Because um, I've had other people tell me that they're excited about it too. So for those of us who like to learn new things, sometimes we feel like kind of fitting it all together is like just be on our fingertips read another book, watched another video, something like that, it would just sort of fall in place and everything would make sense. Look at the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 8, because we didn't quite finish it last time. Solomon says, I gave my heart to do what? To know wisdom, to see the tasks which have been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, like he was saying, you could, you could study this every waking moment and even not sleep at all. And I saw every work of God. What was his conclusion? He says three different ways, the same kind of idea in verse 17. What's the, the basic idea he says several times in verse 17? What can't we discover? Okay, it says the work that has been done under the sun, and I think he's probably connecting it to the first phrase of verse 17, every work of God. So we could look all our lives long, and we still won't know. Imagine if there was a school that was advertising, hey, come to our school, you won't know anything when you leave. But that's true. You come in thinking you know everything. You leave realizing how much you don't know, right, to a certain extent. Any good book or course or study that you do only makes you more and more aware of all the things that you don't know. So, he's going to say the same thing in verse 12. What's the first phrase of verse 12? Sorry, chapter 9. Yeah, man does not know what. Does not know his time. He's going to talk in chapter 9 largely about, between verses 1 through 12, largely about the subject of death. You can't know Especially, you can't know death. You can know certain things about it, but you can't know when. So what are the things that Solomon discovered that he knows are true about death? Well, he starts out and gives a little bit of context in verse 9. For I've taken all this to my heart and explained that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. So the framework for what he's going to say about all these other things is, we don't know, but what? We would think that he would say, but God knows, but he's more saying that God controls it all, right? I mean, he says in other places, certainly, that God knows. So the, the frame of reference is, we don't know, we're in God's hand, and then the end of verse chapter 9, verse 1, man doesn't know whether it will be love or hatred, anything awaits him. Now, 
the question is, did Solomon believe that in an absolute sense? Like, was Solomon really saying, you can't know what's going to happen to you? What do you think? I mean, what does the rest of what does the rest of the Bible teach us? Can we know if God will be pleased or displeased with us when we stand in His presence? Yeah. So the Bible says that we can know that. What are some verses that tell us that? Okay. So if we have faith, that would mean that we can please God. Good. What else? What did John say in 1 John? These things were written so that what? So we can know. Okay, good. Yeah, what? That's the other passage that I was thinking of. That's in John chapter 20. We're going to look at that next Sunday. So, 1 John is, these things were written so that you can know that you know him. We said earlier in John, these things were written so you can believe and have life. So, in the broad context of Scripture, Solomon cannot be saying that it's impossible to know our standing before God. I think what he's probably focusing on is the fact that until we get there, we don't know it experientially. So, let me illustrate it this way. Let's say you had never met your grandparents but your parents told you a bunch of stories about them. They said they're really great people, they're really kind, they're really, uh, they'll do good things for you, that sort of thing. Could you know it in your head, sort of, based on what your parents had told you? But had you ever seen it firsthand? No. I think that's the kind of idea that Solomon is getting at. We don't know firsthand until we arrive at the point of having crossed over death that God is pleased with us or that God has shown love toward us, we can, however, have a right relationship with Him and be certain of the outcome even though we haven't experienced it. Verse 2. Solomon's going to say the first truth about death. Now, when we look at this, we're going to say, Solomon, you talk an awful lot about death and things that are kind of discouraging in the book of Ecclesiastes. But it's important for us to understand these things. For one thing, because people around us do everything they can to forget death and run away from it. I'm not saying we should run toward it and constantly think about it. That would be a bad extreme on the other side. But because they don't understand it, because they don't have any hope of God, we pretend like it doesn't happen. We see this in the way that we speak. So-and-so passed away. This person is in a better place. We don't want to use the words death and die. Why? Because we have to wrestle with why are things this way? Why are these things this way? Well, it goes back to, like in most wisdom literature in the Bible, things that we see in creation. Why is there death and bad things in our world? Because of sin. So, Solomon is saying, sin is in the world, the consequences of sin follow from it, so let's understand them clearly. First of all, 
death is certain. What does it say in verse 2? It is the same for most people. But it's the same for all. We would think that if you're a really good person, you shouldn't die. And if you're a really bad person, you should die right away. But what does Solomon say? There is one fate for the righteous and the wicked, for the good, the clean, and the unclean. Or he said, well, maybe if you do right things in God's sight, that will affect it. The one who offers a sacrifice, the one who doesn't, the good man, the sinner, the swearer, the one who makes promises, and the one who is afraid to swear. If you think that you can stop it by following a certain course, Solomon says, no. Now, think about what it says in the Old Testament and what's repeated in the New Testament, that children who don't obey their parents often lead shorter lives because they get out on their own and they do foolish things and sometimes end up dying young. Not always, but sometimes. So, there are certainly things we do that affect the time of our death, humanly speaking, but the fact of it is something that no one can escape from. It is certain. Solomon recognizes that this is difficult. He even calls it evil. Verse 3, it is evil that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterward, they go to the dead. You look at that verse and say, wait a minute, Solomon, what are you saying here? I think that perhaps what Solomon had in his mind is some of what we see in Genesis chapter 6. Right before the flood, how did God describe everybody's hearts? I'm going to take some notes of this. How did God describe everybody's hearts right before the flood? Okay. He says about their thinking that most of their thoughts were kind of good, but some of them were bad, right? And he said every thought was what? Every thought was bad constantly. So, along those lines, when he says the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts, I think he's speaking of the reality of sin. Apart from God, we do evil constantly, even as Paul says, when we think we're striving to do good, and there is madness and foolishness in that. Think about what Paul says in Romans 1. God is glorious and above all things, but we say, I'm not going to worship the God who made everything. I'm going to worship an animal that is clearly less important than me. So, how many of you have a cat? Okay? The Egyptians worshipped or at least honored cats, right? Is a cat greater or lesser than a person? A cat's less important than a person. Not saying you shouldn't take care of it, all those. I'm just saying a cat is less important than a person. So if you had a choice between worshiping someone who's greater than you and worshiping a cat, which one is foolish to do? It's foolish to worship because it's it's something that is made instead of the one who made everything. So when Solomon says there's insanity in our hearts. 
our motivations for doing things, the things that we do, when you stand back and look at things that are true, you just look at it and say, it doesn't make sense. Why would someone live that way? They're living in a way that is insanity. But it's not an insanity that's like that person is crazy and should be like tied down before they hurt someone. It's just like, it doesn't make sense. That characterizes our lives apart from God. And in that context, living in sin, being ruled by it, or even resisting against it, death comes to everyone. Verses 2 and 3. There is also a, a part of death that is sorrow. He says, verse 4, There is hope when you are joined with the living. A live dog is better than a dead lion. Which one's more powerful, a dog or a lion? A lion. When I was, I don't know, 10 or 11, we got a toy for my yellow Labrador retriever. It was a big red plastic ball, and when we bought it, it was advertised as the indestructible ball. They had to change their advertising a year or so later because somebody threw it in a lion's cage at the zoo, and the lion just trashed the toy. So, clearly a lion is more powerful than a dog. But, if you had to pick between having less power and being alive and having more power and being dead, what Solomon's saying is better. It's better to be alive even if you're not powerful. So, in that context, verse 5, The living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a, re a reward, for their memory is forgotten. Is it happy or sad if people forget about you? It's sad, right? You say, well, but the people that really love me will remember me. For a while. Who was the 12th president of the United States? I don't remember either. He probably learned it in school. Did his family probably care about him? What happened to them too? They died. You sometimes will come up with someone who's really interested in genealogy and family history, and they'll dig through all the records, and they'll say so-and-so had this kid and, and, and that kid, and then they had these kids, and then they had these kids. It's not the same thing as actually knowing and caring about the person just because the name's written down in a book, is it? I'm looking through a genealogy book of my mom's side of the family that was going back to like the 12th century or something. And it was interesting. It's not like I really knew any of those people except my grandpa. So, you know, it's sad to be forgotten, but it's a reality that's connected with death. Furthermore, another aspect of this sorrow is verse 6. What can someone who is dead no longer do? Verse 6. What has gone away? Yes. Right. So look at verse 6. What are three things of them that have gone away? Verse 6. Their love, their hate, and their zeal. 
those things tend to define us, right? What do you love? What do you hate? What do you care about? But when you die, all that goes away. And that's a sad thing as well. And Solomon points it out to us because it says they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. You don't have knowledge. You're forgotten. The things that you cared about and worked hard for in life, you can't do anything about anymore. And you can't participate in life any longer. Death is certain. Death is sorrowful. And then look to verses 11 and 12. Death can happen suddenly or unexpectedly. I saw under the sun the race is not to the swift, the battle not to the warriors, nor bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. So we look at this and we say, well, if I was really fast, I would always win. Sometimes those who are really fast don't always win. If I was really strong and a powerful soldier, I would win the battle. And Solomon says, sometimes that's not true. Think about the story of David and Goliath. David wasn't a warrior. Goliath was. He won. Bread is not always to the wise. Someone could be very wise and yet so poor they can't even provide for their own food. Someone could be very discerning and something unexpected happens and all their wealth and hard work is wiped out. Someone could be very skilled and yet no one take notice of it. As Solomon sums it up at the end of verse 11, time and chance overtake them all. That's an observation about life in the present circumstance, the present situation, but then he turns it to the subject of death in verse 12. Man does not know his time and he uses two pictures of being caught suddenly by death. What's the first picture? Verse 12. Fish caught in a net. How many of you ever gone fishing? How? Why does it work to go fishing? Okay. Good. The fish wants a bait. Does it work if you just throw the hook in the water? Not usually. Does it work if you put bait on the end of it? Yeah. Because they don't see what's coming. If the net comes around from behind them and scoops them up, it works because they didn't see it coming. The second picture in verse 12 is what? Birds in a snare. So if you're trying to catch birds, you should lay the net out where they can see it, and then they'll be sure to land in it and get caught, right? No, you set it up so they don't see it, so they don't suspect it, and they come there, and it swoops them up. Solomon's using these two pictures to talk about the suddenness of death. As a commentary I was looking at, there was a guy who won the lottery thousands and thousands of dollars, had a heart attack the next day, and died. Did he see that coming? No. Think about the biblical story. The guy who said, you know what? Tomorrow I'm going to go out and I'm going to build bigger barns because my barns can't hold all the stuff I've got. Jesus' response was, you fool, you're in today, this night, your life will be required of you. 
We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We can't live in fear of it, but we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, which on the one hand is why it says today is the day of salvation. We have to make sure we're right right with God now and also that we should always be ready. Now, for some people, always being ready means... I have family who always being ready means before you leave the house, you have to make sure it's picked up because someone might see it after and think badly of you if you got in a car accident or something and they had to come take care of things at your house. I'm not sure that that's the main focus. I'm not sure most of us live like that either. But, um, but being ready is not so much about that. Being ready is when you have a conversation with somebody and you walk out the door, what's the last thing you're doing? Are you yelling at them? Or are you honoring God in the way that you talk to them? Are you honoring God in the way you act? Or do you want the last thing that you do on this life to be something sinful? If everything is done with an awareness of death, with a knowledge that God is watching, it affects the way that we live. So death is certain. It happens to everybody. It is sorrowful. It's bad. We can admit that it's bad. It's a consequence of sin. And it can often be sudden and unexpected. So what then does Solomon recommend in verses 7 through 10? Again, a surprising response, just like we saw last time. Sometimes good people die. Sometimes bad people have power over us. Chapter 8, he said, so I commended pleasure. Here in chapter 9, he says, you don't know. Everything's in God's hands, but you don't know, so what? Verse 7, eat your bread in happiness, drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun, for this is your reward in life and and in your toil, which you have labored under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. So what is Solomon advising for us to do? We cannot allow the knowledge of the certainty, the sorrow, the suddenness of death to cause us to be miserable. Because like Jesus said in his, his uh, teaching, God watches out for the sparrows. You can't add a hair to your head or a day to your life and a moment to your life by worrying about it. So there's a sense in which we have to rest in God's control of all those things. There's also a sense in which we have to live according to God's purpose. We saw this earlier um, in chapter 7. Don't be excessively righteous or overly wise. Don't be excessively wicked or be a fool. Don't be self-righteous. Don't be wicked. Follow God the way that you should. So there's things about the way that we should live. But here in this passage, his primary focus is enjoy the life that God has given you, particularly because it is short. Sometimes we are focused on the next thing. Sometimes we're focused on the wrong thing. And both of those wrong focuses cause us not to enjoy the life that God has given to us. If you are in school, 
you're doing schoolwork, whether it be in a classroom or at your house or wherever you're doing school, and you're saying, I wish I was doing what I want to do after school. Are you going to enjoy the moment that you're in at school? No. Is there something that can be enjoyed even in doing the work of school? Yeah. You might like some subjects more than others, but there is pleasure and good things to be found in working hard at school. If you're at work and you're only focused on what I'm going to do after work, <coughs> you're going to grow to be miserable at your job. Now, I'm not saying you should love your job more than your family. I'm not saying that it should be like the thing that you live for. But God gave us work to do, and we can't... Um, sometimes we look at it as a necessary evil instead of something that God made before the curse of sin entered the world. I'm not saying every job existed before sin entered into the world, but the concept of working hard... Adam was supposed to work in the garden. It's sin that made the work hard. But he was supposed to work in the garden. And we too are supposed to work. There is pleasure to be found in family. If we think, well, I want to be doing something off by myself. We have to do this thing as a family. And I would rather go read a book or play outside or do something on the computer or whatever else instead of spending time with family, we miss the joy and the opportunity to, to have pleasure in what God has given us right here and there. If we are looking at the food in front of us and saying, I wish we were past the peas and the chicken and whatever else and on to the ice cream and the pie and the whatever... God gave it to you to enjoy. You can be grateful to your parents who provided for or prepared it. There are opportunities for us to enjoy all of the different things in life. There are opportunities for us to even make wise use of the things that seem like they're not good things in life. When you're sick and you can't do the things that you want to do, sometimes you have more opportunity to pray or to think about things that are true about God because you're not so busy with the other things that usually take up your attention. Sometimes when um, something else comes unexpected, it stops us in our tracks and it refocuses our lives. Do we see all the moments of our lives as opportunities from God or do we try to push past them and move on to the next thing? Sometimes we're not focused on the next thing Sometimes we're focused on the wrong thing. It says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. God's given us a task to do. It's not just pick whatever you want and do whatever you feel like. It's do what honors God. It says, for example, in verse 9, Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun, for this is your reward in life. Guys, when you're out working, you're going to encounter other women. And there's going to be at some point or another a temptation to say, I would be more happy if I spent time with this person instead of the wife God has given to me. 
hopefully you immediately push that thought out of your head. What is Solomon saying? Solomon says, enjoy life with the woman, the wife that you love, all the days of your life. This is your reward. Think about all the things it says in Proverbs. It seems like if we went over here, we would have something that makes us more happy. That's the way that the world around us portrays it. That's the way that sometimes it appears in situations that we encounter in the context of work. I want you to remember that that's a lie. God says don't go looking for happiness outside your home. Work to create it inside the home that he's already given you. The same can be true of wives as well. If you feel like your husband is not giving you the attention that you deserve, maybe you turn somewhere else. I'm not going to take the easy target of, you know, movies and romance novels and those sorts of things, although I think you've got to be wise about that. Sometimes it's just simple things, like if he would just notice that I spend hours and hours cleaning up this corner of the house and then the kids immediately trashed it, if you would just notice that, I would be more fulfilled and more happy. Don't go looking for happiness outside your home. Recognize that ultimately it comes from God, and then flowing from that, it comes from the family, the home where God has put you. Verse 8 is a question of, uh, does it go with verse 7, or does it go with verse 9? without going into excessive detail, probably the main focus of it is to say it's good to have clean clothes and not smell terrible in the context of rejoicing in the context of your home. So if he's putting it with verse 9 in the context of enjoying life with your wife, probably is in your favor if you wear clean clothes and don't smell like you just come out from working outside all the time. And if it's in the context of verse 7, then sort of the picture is like of a feast. You don't go to a feast wearing your dirty shirt that needs to be washed and your jeans that are full of mud. You go to a feast wearing clothes appropriate to rejoicing. Like if you're going to go to a wedding, right? You don't go pill something out of the laundry. You put on something appropriate for the occasion. So whichever way you take it, Solomon is saying there's a time and a place for rejoicing, and the context of that rejoicing are the simple blessings that God has given you in your life right now. And you can particularly enjoy them because you recognize that they're for a little while. Because if we think that they last forever, We'll waste all our time doing things that really don't make us happy and really we don't enjoy scrolling for hours on Facebook, sorting through junk that we should have thrown away a long time ago, all of these sorts of things. We can get so caught up in little things that occupy so much of our time that are not important that we miss the good things that God has put right in front of us. And Solomon says, if you remember... You don't know, but your times are in God's hands. If you remember that death is certain 
and sorrowful and potentially sudden, then that ought to affect the way that you live your life. Enjoy your life. Enjoy it with people, not with stuff. Enjoy it in the context of where God has put you. And you can rejoice even in the face of the knowledge that you live in a world where everyone dies. It is sorrowful. It can come suddenly. And until Jesus comes back, it will not all be set right. But you can still rejoice because God's in control. And even though you don't know, He does. So do we rejoice? Or do we waste our time on things that aren't really enjoyable or chase after what could bring us joy in the wrong way, in the wrong places? Look at the context where we can find it. Rest in God. Enjoy life. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you have blessed us in so many different ways. Lord, help us to be aware, aware of those blessings that are sometimes right in front of us that we can overlook for a variety of reasons. Certainly there is joy to be found in serving you and sharing the gospel, all the things that we read about in the New Testament. But thank you for this reminder from Solomon that there also is a right and proper joy to be found in sitting outside, playing in the yard with your family, eating food together, talking about what's going on in our lives. And if we fill our lives with things that are selfish or isolated or pointless or just not important, we will miss those pleasures. Lord, help us to not be selfish in the way that we live our lives. Help us not to be caught up in things that don't matter. Help us instead to enjoy the life that you have given us with the people you have given us to enjoy it with, knowing that we are in your hand. We cannot add to our lives. We cannot take away from our lives. It is up to you. And so help that to motivate us to enjoy it all the more as a gift from you knowing that you rule over it, that our knowledge is limited, that we try to understand what's going on in this world, but we cannot fully grasp all of it. But even so, we can rest in your care and enjoy the life that you have given to us. We pray that you would help us to do that even this week. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.